Hello, frazzled women. I am so excited for you to meet my guest today. And I'm also a little bit fangirl, let's be honest. So my guest today is Marika Anthony Shaw, who is the founder and CEO of Plus One, but you may know her name as the viola player for almost nine years with one of my favorite bands in the world, Arcade Fire. So Marika and I are going to talk about all sorts of different things, about being a woman, about being a working mom, about managing perspective, and more importantly, about building community, which is something so important to me and partly what drives this whole podcast. Just so you have a little context, Marika is the founder and CEO of Plus One. Plus One is actually revolutionizing philanthropy and creating social and civic engagement through music. So what started as adding a dollar to an Arcade Fire ticket so they could support causes that were near and dear to the hearts of the members of the band has now become where she's devoting most of her time in the in the working world and her energy and her enthusiasm and her smarts. And so we're going to get to hear about that journey and just how she does that and balances all of the other parts of being a woman and being a mom and being a wife and and how that all comes together. So without any further ado, let me take you over to our conversation. Marika, welcome to Le Vital Corps Salon. I am so happy to have you here. You know, thank you. Thanks. You know, this it was amazing how long it took us to get this scheduled. So I'm I'm super excited. We don't have to schedule anymore. We can just talk. I'm so sorry. No, no apologies necessary because I'm equally as inflexible some days. <laughs> um these days, you're the founder and president of Plus One, but for eight years you were a member of Arcade Fire. Considering most people quit their job for a life in rock and roll and you moved in the opposite direction, I'm guessing there's a few likely scenarios. Like A, you're just a badass renegade. B, you're a social do-gooder. C, you have one hell of a story. Or D, all of the above. What say you? Oh, um, I don't know. (laughs) E, (laughs) I'm just itchy. (laughs) Um... I think for me, there's like the transition involved so many different aspects of me personally in my life. And, you know, fundamentally, I really believe in the transformative power of music. Just to back up a little bit. I, it was like a, it was like a slow transition over a long period of time. I was raised in an environment of, of, social justice and the value of diversity and identity. And my mom was a, an anthropologist it is still, I shouldn't say it was, is an anthropologist and a linguist who works in language revitalization in first nation communities. And so she goes into communities that have very few speakers left of a language and works with, you know, tr- most often elders who have some language still and learns it, documents it, and sets up language courses in these communities. And what that really taught us, you know, she would like bring us, like throw us over her shoulders and bring us traveling with her all through our youth. And that really instilled this kind of value of really this importance of identity and this importance of 
um, you know, strength of identity um, and diversity and what really makes us human. And I think that that was like my journey with music too, was really the, the, the power that music has to bring us together and is really profoundly what makes us human. Those goosebumps that we feel, that moving exhilaration that we can feel. And so, you know, my journey has really been a, with music has been about that. I taught music for many, many years and I found that a really incredible transformative thing too. And when I was playing in the band, you know, as our shows grew and as people, more and more people kind of entered this room and we experienced this thing together, that was really, for me, what was a really exciting. I was going to say, I mean, the experience you're describing, I mean, on the flip side, as a fan, I mean, I remember seeing you at Coachella. And it's like you look out and it's a sea of people and, and the rhythm is there and everyone is one. Like mm-hmm. everyone is stomping, everyone is clapping, everyone is singing. And it for mm-hmm. a moment in time, everyone is, is together. Everyone's in sync. And that's like, that's powerful. Like that's why you do it. Like I don't know which Coachella you were at. One of the Coachellas, well, we were playing just like the sunset set right before, I think it was right before Bjork like 2007 maybe and I just remember like looking out and just looking out at 80,000 people with the sunset behind going down just being like what is this this is unbelievable (laughs) this is like you know and I I sometimes think that the band has even like the better view because we just get to look out across all these incredible faces and dancing people and you know weird outfits and like but then you go past that and it just becomes this oneness like you're describing and and visceral like like when you mentioned Very. the goosebumps like that made mm-hmm. me sit straight up because it's it's you feel it it's not mm-hmm. even just like what you're taking in a, from a sensory perspective it's it's something that seems mm-hmm. to transcend that as well mhm exactly and you know we got involved the band got involved with Haiti you know really really early on regimes from Haiti and knowing that it's I mean, everybody, I hope everybody knows this, but it's, you know, like the poorest country in the hemisphere. It's an hour and a half from Miami. And the history of Haiti is just so powerful because it was the first successful slave revolt. It was the first independent black colony. And it's just kind of like the (laughs) juxtaposition of those two things is, is important to recognize kind of like accurate history there and understand that they're not, not unrelated. So, I guess that there's just been a certain part of me that was really like interested in in this in the the social impact side of like how we move through life. I'm really fundamentally interested in compassion and I'm really really interested in you know what can we do to drive togetherness and unity as opposed to divisiveness. And music is one of those things that in those moments you feel that and it's not about what sets us apart, but what in fact does bring us together. And that can sound kind of, I don't know, esoteric or something like that. But it, it is a really profound um, and important focus, I think. So as we started, you know, contributing to Haiti and as we started giving a dollar per ticket, you know, that dollar is just a, you know, you could look at it as just a dollar. You could look at it as a group of people. But but like as, as you 
are in that space and you're shoulder to shoulder and you're like smelling people and feeling people and experiencing things together, it does really allow for transformative change to happen. That because you're together in this room that night, because you're experiencing this thing together, you know, lives are like direct lives are being like significantly impacted elsewhere. It is community for community. And I became obsessed with this notion. <laughs> Let's back up a little, Marika. Where did the idea initially come from? Because I, I think, you know, sometimes I've seen in the startup world and with other entrepreneurs or with even with with clients or friends that like they get a big idea and then it goes from just being this idea to this like, I've got to make it this enormous thing. And then people kind of get mired in it gets so big as a concept that they can't even like execute. Yeah. What was it like when when you when you all first had that thought like, hey, we could do this? Oh, man, we can get we can get talking about being mired in the you know difficulties of execution, man. Let's talk about that. But <laughs> I'm I'm putting that on my I'm putting that on my list because I think yeah I mean so how many you know when you think about it or when I hear like how many great ideas die a certain death before they've even before any action has has been taken right so yeah. yes we yeah. should definitely go there. Well, and I think with you know there was also like it was also just this band doing this thing and it was not called plus one and it was not formalized and it was impactful. And so I think there was a certain proof of concept, you know, in the startup world, like you come with this proof of concept, but it's already been executed in a, in a very lo-fi way. It was just there. So it was kind of like an already executed idea in a certain way. And the, the transition to really making it plus one was, you know, and a lot of, a lot of artists do a ticket add-on. So a lot of artists will say like, oh, I'm going to add 25 cents here. I'm going to add $2 there. I'm going to, you know, try and do something for this local community. That's not really the idea. But like, you know, how do we take these random instances of, of artists doing it? And the power of Arcade Fires doing it was that it was like fully consistent. There has never been a show since 2006 that hasn't done this. And that's where the power comes into it is it's not like we dabble in a value system. Like, is it so easy to do that these days where you're like, cool, I'm really going to care about something tonight. But, you know, in two days when it becomes difficult to care about that, I'm going to, I'm going to be able to ignore it. Or like, you know, I said so through my socials that I care about this. So because I publicly declared it, I don't necessarily need to live it or all these things that it's difficult to be congruent and, um, you know, to be committed. And I think, we were. And I think that's where the power came in. Because it takes a lot of, you know, 1,000-seat venues or 5,000-seat venues to add up to $2 million. Yes, it does. I mean, right? just when I saw that number, when I saw that number, all I could think was like, like trying to picture what, what a crowd of 2 million people look like, right? Like, I think I went back to that image of Coachella in my head and like, you know, was sort of thinking like, okay, what's the capacity of that? Like, what does that look like? And then trying to extrapolate from there. Like, what does 2 million people look like? Because it really is one person, one dollar. Yeah. And now we're up at like upwards of 4 million. And oh so my God. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. It's exciting. And, you know, there's the two sides of that. It's exactly what you're saying. It's like, wow, that's a lot. And also it's like, ah, it's only 4 million. <laughs> <You know? laughs> For the amount of work you're putting in, right? <laughs> I know, exactly. You know, but 
it's also 4 million people. And, and, and like you're saying, that's the exciting bit is because in that community of 4 million people, there are such extraordinary stories coming out of students going back to their universities and starting clubs or, or re rereading their, their school literature and with a different lens um, and digging in deeper, voting for the first time and understanding the power that you have when you actually do vote, you know, waking up the next, next day being slightly less racist even like, isn't that great to, you know, see the, see, you know, in Arcade Fire's example, is be able to be a little bit more critical with how the media depicts Haiti. Yes. And, and and be able to kind of look more critically at that. All of these different kind of ripple effects that end up happening through that one moment of shared compassion, ultimately. So it's like, it's that ripple effect that plus one is really focused on. And, you know, how can we use different storytelling measures or how can we you know, help accompany artists in their own journey of philanthropy um, to talk about it in a way that it's really just personalizing all of us. And rather than like kind of creating the divide between like rock star, quote unquote, and audience, it's kind <laughs> of like, you know, really plus one empowers artists to partner with their fans. It's a partnership together. It brings them closer together to drive awareness and advocacy and of course, then the important resources for these organizations. So it's like, that's what I, I kind of became obsessed with more and more. And, and, you know, as we were doing this, it's like, how can we do it better? How can we engage these volunteers um, longer? And I just, I just loved meeting the volunteers every night and saying like, why did you want to do this? Why, why, why do you want to come do this? And hearing their stories and, and then the conversation really came down to why isn't everybody doing this? What are the barriers <laughs> such that this isn't across our industry, not in a behind the scenes way and not in a kind of corporate social responsibility way, but in a really fundamental way. We talk about change as artists. We are leaders of change. Unfortunately, we live in a time where we're not looking at our, like we're not trusting our politicians to be the voice of all of us. We're not trusting, we don't have the same kind of like church or, you know, temple or, you know, religious. Yes, that fabric is is disintegrating in a lot of communities, I think. And so we do look at our cultural leaders and the cultural shift is a profoundly important part of shifting. You know, I don't want to use this refinery 29 came out with a really good like list yesterday of all these business terms that no one should use anymore. And so I'm like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> But I was like just about to say move the needle and I'm like not. I'm like, sorry, shouldn't say that anymore. But, you know, <laughs> really, like shifting us towards the kind of really important change that we want to see. I think it's I think it's funny, like the, the move the needle comment. You know, when I was conceptualizing like what I wanted this podcast to be, I had watched the LCD sound system docu and James had used a line about leaving your stain on the world. And I, I think I've really resonated with that. And it's it's sort of always been like a, a piece of like that I've gone back to when I was sort of thinking, who are the women I want to talk to? What are the stories I want to hear? What do I think my listeners would want to hear? But something about that, like I got a lot of pushback on that, right? Like about leaving your stain, like that's kind of gross. But I think right. 
in comparison to moving the needle, which feels like very contrived and measured, there's something yeah. kind of gritty about like, how can, how can you leave your stain out there? Like, right. it's not always pretty, but the impact can be felt, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's not always pretty. None of it's pretty. You got to get, like, you know, you got to get close to this stuff and kind of sit with, particularly those of us that come from privilege or that we've had these incredible experiences. It's like, you know, I would sit down with myself and be like, cool, because I'm in this band, I get to have dinner with Paul Farmer. And Marika, talk about Paul Farmer so the listeners know. Well, Paul is, and, I, and I, I'm going to speak about Paul as well as the whole team at Partners in Health and the people that we've met there. Because, you know, here's this organization um, led by Paul Farmer, Ophelia Dahl, and, you know, founded by Jim Kim, who's now the president of the World Bank. But it's, it's um, this incredible community of people that, we're not okay with, I'm trying to find a word here. The status quo? Yeah, the status quo. I was trying to be a little bit more. <laughs> Creative. <laughs> <laughs> like, the fact that, like, you know, we, he's the first guy to treat multidrug-resistant tuberculosis in areas of poverty. When the rest of the world was saying it is too expensive, it is, you know, these drugs need to be seen as a luxury, not as essential and then you're like looking but there's millions of people that are dying of this and we have the drugs but you're saying because they're poor they're not worth saving and the same thing then happened with hiv that we have antiretroviral drugs which were working and allowing people to have a pretty amazing normal life where they could contribute and have joy and all these really important human things that we look for and you know the world was like nope we're just going to give and by the world i mean the who the kind of like you know policy powers and they were saying we're going to just invest in prevention so the 27 or whatever million people that currently have hiv like it was a death sentence it's a death sentence and we have the medication and so paul farmer was like no way i don't believe that that's okay and i'm going to prove you wrong and he did over and over and over again and partners in health proved people wrong over and over and over again to now when you have the most horrific genocide in rwanda and they need to rebuild from such deep divisiveness and horror and who do they call to rebuild we need a functioning you know pro people health system and they call in partners in health and who does who do they call not just partners in health but partners in health the haitians from haiti on the ground in haiti went to rwanda to rebuild the rwandan healthcare system it was them that said we know how to do it because we did it on the ground in haiti so that's paul and that's powerful and generous and giving right like when you th like as a as a haitian person who's just undergone this so difficult rebuilding process and then they're able to say like okay we're gonna help you now well pretty... and they're still undergoing it you know what i mean yes. but it's also like if you're looking at experts they're not going to always come from the hallways of harvard i mean paul is in the har hallways of harvard so i don't want to say that but like you know you gotta 
proximity is really important. <laughs> yes. And like, I was talking to one of the, the, the head of partners in health in, in Haiti um, the other day who was here in Montreal and, and, you know, post hurricane Matthew, just all the work that needs to be done that the world continues to not recognize, which is we continue to try and fix the acute disasters without building the underlying systems that really involve. It's complicated to build under on, you know, it's difficult, but it's the most essential work to build the true systems of healthcare and um, access. So, you know, I've just, you know, I, I'm a, I consider myself certainly like a lifelong student of, of Paul Farmer, of Brian Stevenson, who runs the Equal Justice Initiative, of um, all these extraordinary humans who, you know, it's not that we don't have the answers to a lot of these very complex problems, it's that we're not supporting the answers to these <laughs> complex problems. Well, I, I, think, and, I think you raise an interesting point about like the infrastructure not being there that a lot of times and I see this on a microscopic level compared to what you're talking about in in the work that I do I use the metaphor you can't build a house on a foundation of jello right because yeah. I think like a lot of times like when women come to me it's when something is acutely broken with their health or their their life and like they're just not feeling good and it's tell me what the quick fix is tell me how to make tell me how to make this depression go away. Tell me what will make this yeah. inflammation go away. Tell me what will make this this gut dysfunction go away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can't build a house on jello, right? right? Like you have to step back and look like, well, you can throw a lot of fixes, like quick fixes at this problem, but it is just going to resurface or it's going to resurface in another form, right? Yes. Like if the underlying health, like, the underlying vitality that someone needs to support health isn't there. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I think. Exactly. Exactly. And it goes for all. Of, I mean, like you're saying, it goes for all of us. Like we all individually need a pretty substantial foundation. Yeah. And, and I mean, and then you see that same problem first. extrapolated, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, and then, yeah. you know, for me, I'm working one-on-one usually with people. So it's, it's, you can break it apart. You can talk about it. And I mean, that's, hard enough in its own right then when you add just layers and layers and layers of bureaucracy and opinions and having to come to agreement it's you know where does that leave a place like haiti oh man (laughs) (laughs) i feel like we could talk for days on that right we could talk for days about it and then i would actually you know call in some haitians to talk about it more accurately but like it's it's that that work and sometimes you know where where I come at it from is like I'm not doing the work in Haiti but it's also I don't believe that one can really unlearn like I think you have to be really active to unlearn things that you see or that you bear witness to and it seems quite obvious to me that one wouldn't for example go into a, a place and build use resources to build a huge structure, which is a hospital, but not think about how to fill that with doctors. Is there a training program or a medical school to train doctors to fill that hospital? Is there a system for, you know, allowing, are there roads to get to this hospital so that patients can actually get there? Is there 
outreach, like all of those different systems that go in. And so instead, what you're going to do use resources for is like building the structure, which is a hospital, and you get to go home to your country and be like, cool, we built a hospital. Like, look at us. We are so great because we built a hospital in Haiti. <laughs> and they yeah. can't use the hospital. They can't use it. So I, I've heard from doctors that would rather use the crumbling down hospital because at least there's a system in place there than use the brand new hospital that an NGO has come in and built because there's no system in place. They don't have enough doctors or nurses or, you know, custodians or people to register the patients or that patients can't get there. It's not a convenient place for patients to go. And once we've seen that over and over and over and over and over and over again, and it's so like the other day, I was like, why would someone build this? Like we know the answer already. It's not fixing the issue. Why are people doing it? And so I believe that if more and more people understand that, if we can somehow shift the culture that we would never expect any of these NGOs to go in and just build a hospital and leave, there must be some expectation that they're trying to provide to the, their funders or whatever. Like there's a whole, you know, system, another system in place where that they feel like that's what they're expected to do. So if we can kind of change that culture of understanding, like what are needs of people? What does systems building mean? Um, and in our own backyards too, man, we've got a lot of work to do in our own backyards yes. and like, you know, how can we come together to start really understanding transparently complexity? Now that's not plus one, that's getting into like, that's getting a little out of our, our immediate scope. But what we try and do is like highlight some of these organizations that are doing the really hard work and that are kind of addressing these very, very, very challenging questions in pretty tangible ways. So let's, before we, we go on, let's come back, break down what Plus One does for the listener. I know, I, I know you can probably do it much more succinctly than I can at this point, but just so everyone's clear with where you fit into this ecosystem and then kind of talk about scope. Yeah. You know what? We kind of got off track with that ecosystem because I shouldn't, you know, we should get other people to talk about that. <laughs> I shouldn't talk about that. <laughs> but I think it's I think it's interesting and important stuff. And, you know, as I'm listening, right, like your world from the outside seems so confusing. And like I have a friend who who worked in humanitarian aid in the in the Middle East for a long time and just hearing sort of her world and, and what she did from the outside, it just seems like this <laughs> this wall of of static sometimes right like there's all yeah. these like i just have this visual of like this wall with all these like moving limbs and parts that like how do you break into it so i i think it is important to hear like i i don't think we don't put anyone on pedestals in this show myself included so i think you get to have an opinion about these things and i think it also just helps us on the outside understand like how truly complex it is and then at the same time, like, some of it is totally common sense, right? Like, what I'm hearing from you is, okay, like, it's really sexy to say that you built a hospital or a school, but if it's dormant because no one can get there or there's no power or, you know, whatever the issues are, like, how has that changed things at all? Like, what impact has really been made? Mm -hmm. I think that's important to hear. Yeah, it is really important to hear. 
Um, so here's a qu- here's a question for you yeah, on a yeah. on the personal side of this. You get up and you go to work, and I imagine the work that you do and the the blood, sweat, and tears that you put into this feels incredibly fulfilling for you. But like, what do you do on the days where you just feel like? holy shit, does no one else see this? Or maybe it's something else. Maybe the pain point is is something else. But like, how do you keep going? Well, and I just like backing up, like what I do is certainly not, like what I want to do is, what Partners in Health has really profoundly taught me from the early days is the power of like accompaniment. And they talk about accompaniment in their healthcare model, where they have community health workers who are really pivotal to um, the delivery of healthcare to people, with with a belief that like, you know, it is up to the healthcare provider to provide healthcare rather than the patient to come and seek it out necessarily. So they will walk, you know, hours and hours a day if necessary to find the sickest patients and deliver them healthcare and come back and kind of be the eyes and ears of a clinic to say like, Hey, this person is really, really sick. And, 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 you know, came from adhering to some of these drug protocols that we were talking about with multi-drug resistant tuberculosis or, or AIDS where it is, it's a big regimen and these community health workers really were, heroic in delivering those medications at the right time every day and accompanying those patients to getting well again. And like accompaniment can go from there to accompanying a government, rebuilding their healthcare system. And what plus one in a weird way, you know, and we don't really talk about this in our materials, but like we want to accompany these organizations who are doing so great to be like, you're not alone, man. We like see the work that you're doing and it's amazing. What do you need? So that's the work that Plus One does. So we really partner with artists. And we also see, obviously, artists as catalysts for change. And then, you know, our our real mission is to empower them to partner with their fans and together drive, drive awareness and resources for these organizations. So we kind of, you know, we seek out artists. Artists seek us out and say, like, hey, you know, I'm really like the Brock Turner case from Stanford yes. really shook me. I'm like, I, I'm like, that really matters to me. I've written songs about it, but like, what can we do to erase this, you know, to address this kind of like rape culture and sexual violence that's happening? So we work with them on that. And we, you know, we had local natives out. They just had their last night in New York yesterday or the day before, I don't know what day it is, but, um, where we partnered with two, like a national organization called Callisto that is providing like safe and anonymous reporting systems. One of the biggest issues with this culture of assault on, especially on college campuses is that, you know, less than 10% of these are getting reported. Um, and one in five women over their college careers, will be sexually assaulted. Those are the numbers. Yes. And so it's like, so, you know, here's this like white privileged 
group of guys that are in an awesome rock band. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and they're like, I haven't personally felt this, but we still have a really important role in this, a vital role in this. And so, you know, we worked with them and then local gender-based violence, sexual assault centers across the nation in every city that they were playing in. Um, so they got to really be advocates and partner with that community for that community um, everywhere that they were playing. So that's what we, helping artists be as profoundly um, impactful in the way that they want, recognizing, though, it, that it's not charity shows across the country. This is not like a big, this is not a benefit concert. It's a rock show. And it's still art. And art is, is the core center of, of all of this, is that like the art happens first. And because art is powerful, the cherry on top is that we also get to do this change and this impact work. And that's what's brilliant about what you're doing. Because it's, it's really about integrating it in a super organic way. Yeah. How did that start? Well, you know, so Arcade Fire was doing it and, uh, you know, or doing the ticket add-on, the dollar. And it's so interesting because, like, partners, I, I don't think that the, the partnership with Partners in Health, it, it wasn't intended to be so deep. It, be, it was ended up being like a byproduct of, of constantly doing these dollars and building on it and going to Haiti and seeing the work. And so what, what was initially kind of a kind of philanthropic model ended up into like a really transformative partnership. And it was that question of like, you know, sitting down with Paul Farmer, as well as the band, as well as other artist friends or people in community saying like, why isn't everybody doing this? And plus one was really born out of those conversations of like, what are the barriers? How can we re remove the barriers such that anybody who wants to engage in work like this can. And moreover, then how can we normalize this? How come this isn't like, how can we bring it from a point of like, well, well, it's, it's special that we do plus one to like, oh, no, 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 it's essential that we're doing plus one. <laughs> and, you know, like, we got to live by example. I think like one of the really important roles that cultural leaders have or any leader should participate in is being a model. And not being a model for, like, like cookie-cutter good behavior or whatever. That's not what I mean. But, like... <laughs> no, in a real way. In, like, a real way. It's like, you know, I, like, I I care about something and I'm going to live by it. Like, for, like, actually wearing your value system on your sleeve. You know, so that's where Plus One was. was it was certainly, like... It's so funny because now when I'm in San Francisco, people like use words like incubating. It was really incubating for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so sexy, right? Yeah. Compared like, to the like, compared to the semi-controlled chaos experiments holy. failing and succeeding. And like, like how do you transfer all these experiences and? relationships and partnerships from this unbelievably exciting intelligent world like the people in the music industry that we have the privilege of of like working with now and that I also had the privilege of getting to know and work with through Arcade Fire like pretty unbelievable and how do we harness that or how do I personally harness that that was my journey of like 
you know, it was really like, what are you going to do with these opportunities that you get? What are you going to do with that? And for me, I saw these really kind of like fluorescently glaring intersection of these things that I cared about, which was music and the power of music and also impact and social change. And like, you know, that's where a plus one was born out of. And so how do you, you know, great. So that's like a good idea. Like you're talking about <laughs> how do you execute on that? Yeah. Well, I was <laughs> like, just, and I was just coming to that question and I, I think we touched on it before, but so many people have good ideas. Like I want to change the world. They get up and do it. But then something happens the moment it gets hard, the moment yeah. it gets uncomfortable. How yeah. did you navigate those points and stay the course? Well, my experience is so far, I mean, I'm still early in on this. So bearing that in mind, I think that it being hard, like if, if, if you are claiming that you're quote unquote changing the world, which I, you know, I have a really difficult time with that kind of language, but like, and it's not difficult, <laughs> like, come on, you know what I mean? <laughs> like the things that people all over billions and billions of people face every day is so profoundly difficult. And for us to claim that we're changing it without it being difficult, um, like really, really profoundly difficult. It needs to be difficult, I think. So Does it? Yeah. Because, I, I, I mean, think, I think in some ways, right, like just saying thank you to someone on the street, just holding a door for someone, you don't know what's going on in their life, right? Like you, you could have just perform this small act of kindness that changes the tenor of their day. Oh, I agree with that a thousand percent. I agree that like compassion is not difficult. It should not be difficult. Okay. Got it. Yeah. I, but I believe that if you're one that is making claims of changing the world. In, you better be you putting the, the sweat equity. That's in. what I mean. <laughs> that's what I mean. Like, that's a Got it. Big claim. But I believe that, you know, instead of claiming that, integrating it into what we do every day, which is what plus one really aims to do, is not, is like what plus one does ultimately needs to be absolutely simple and is absolutely simple. It's not complicated to add a dollar onto your ticket. What I mean is the complicated is like building an organization, fundraising for that, getting a board together, integrating everything into like, how do you integrate it all into an office space and like build a database that's going to do accurate reporting on what your measurement impacts are, like, or your impact (laughs) measurements are. It's like, that stuff was like, oh my God, I went to music school. (laughs) And I'm, I'm laughing because I was a CPA. So I'm like, ooh, data, <laughs> analytics. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like turning your life into spreadsheets, you know? So that is what I mean by like being difficult and challenging. Like if you're going to take this on, do it properly. Do it well. But, but. Have there ever been moments where you've thought, what am I doing? What have I, like, have you ever felt like an imposter? Have you ever just felt oh, exhausted? both yes yes and yes yes a thousand percent every day (laughs) um and and i I think this is really important for the listeners to hear because i think so many times 
you know, we we put people on a pedestal. We see the work that they're doing. We're like, you're great. But we forget that there's a real person that is deeply challenged to try to keep this train on the tracks every day. Well, yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult in, 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 you know, a lot of different ways. Um, and it was difficult, like, you know, like transitioning out of like arcade fire into plus one and that moment of being like, you know, can plus one and Marika happen? So this is, you know, without it being arcade fire Marika. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. So I think what you're saying, let me make sure I'm hearing you correctly. It sounds like a little bit of imposter syndrome, right? Like, would I get, would my name carry the same cachet as Marika of Arcade Fire? Or do I need that? Like, can this, yeah. And like, can I, you know, here I go um, into this same world with extraordinary friends and extraordinary relationships um, and also like, and really pivoting and to do it properly, like properly pivoting. And so like, here we go. And that was that moment of like, whew, okay, here we go. Own two feet, your own foundation moving forward. And that was a really challenging and extraordinarily liberating at the same time shift for me it sounds like there was fear there yeah there was fear I think there was fear of like is plus one just a good idea or is it actually a thing of course there's that fear and my own personal like relationship with music and as a performer and transitioning away from you know viola being my primary mode of communication to like words and decks and like <laughs> and spreadsheets you know, my voice and um you know and that being my primary like doing panels and that being my primary external um mode of communication and um you know it was like it, it was all of those things where it was in a sense a, a very challenging leap and a very um obvious leap at the same time for me and what I needed in my life. Um, so it was very, the energy was there to pull you forward despite feeling all of this kind of uncertainty. Yeah, there was like a lot of uncertainty and I've heard it described by other people where there's like, there's I think two different kinds or maybe seven different kinds. I don't know. But there's the kind of uncertainty that's like, that doesn't feel good uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And there was the like, okay, bootstraps this is the right kind of uncertainty and I was like this you know you have to have the conversations of like there's enough support in in a weird way you know we had the advantage of like we had support for plus one before that you know ultimate transition happened where we had a lot of other artists that had declared like of course yeah we need this in our community this really matters and we had, um, you know, foundation support and, and individual philanthropists saying, yep, I've got your back on this. This is great. We're together in this and we can formalize and scale 
plus one as a, an organization. And so, you know, there was a, a, like that level of security, I think, going into it. And I don't and I and I'm grateful to have had that. I don't know that I could have done the leap without that stuff there. But and who do you call on for support in that moment? Like, like when you were feeling in that place of like, okay, the the demand is there. It doesn't seem like a super risky leap. But wow, I am really feeling this. I guess maybe back up one. Where do you experience it? Because sometimes I work with people who are very divorced between their mind and body. So maybe if you could share that and then like what support look like for you on a personal level. What does what feel like fear? Yeah, just like when you were feeling that like, am I enough? Is this together enough? Should I make this leap? (laughs) Part of it was I told people I was gonna so I had to (laughs) (laughs) that's my approach with half marathons it's like sign up and then immediately email my friends (laughs) so I think that was like part of it is you know don't go back on those decisions you know I think a lot of it was the support of the band like my friends in Arcade Fire saying like yeah you got this like, we've got your back and you've got our blessing and go do this. That really, really mattered. And Conversely, Marika. Yeah. I saw a quote of yours from an interview and it was about don't always have yes people around. So you have this support of your friends and this blessing to sort of keep the momentum going and have you make this leap. Where did that lesson come from about yes people? I think that might have been taken from the, from this this panel that I was doing on like um, I don't remember what it's called, but it was basically like how to use your influence. It was about like influencers and how to use your influence for good. And as people get more and more um, in the public eye or have more and more you know cultural influence, it's really easy to start to just want people that, you know, to, to stay grounded. Um, I think it's really important that all of us remain challenged and kind of two feet on the ground and knowing where our foundations are. And it's really easy to get away from that when you just have people around you that no matter what you say, they're like, great idea. You're like, I'm going (laughs) to cook this meal and it's going to be like jalapenos and jelly beans with like and they're like great idea and you're like no it's not it's not a good idea <laughs> <I'm gonna taste laughs> <it." laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> yes. like, you can kind of lose sight of of oneself on the ground so I think that that's what that that was about and I like that like I always cr- I like I love a challenging or critical conversation um I I get like, hit me where it hurts. <laughs> um, and and so I don't know that I, like, I think that's where that lesson comes from, is just having people, for all of us to have people around that that can challenge us in a compassionate and open way, but that we get out of our own heads sometimes. I think it's really important that we can see the bigger picture. 
So how do you stay in your own head? Oh, that's not difficult for me to say in my own head. <laughs> um, <laughs> or lose the perspective. You're mentioning that you have like yes people that help you keep that perspective. How do you, on a day-to-day basis, like it would be very easy to be like, well, I've won a Grammy. I've won Brit Awards. I was in a huge band. Like to really just lose that groundedness, lose that connection, you know, start serving jelly beans with jalapenos. I mean, maybe that's delicious. I don't know. Maybe that's like, that, that's on like a <laughs> I feel like that's like a top chef. That. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, you're welcome chopped for the amazing idea. But um, <laughs> um, I, I don't know, like, I don't have, you know, like right now, I've got like a tiny office with like, two employees. And we're like, all stamping envelopes and all dusting and all doing all of the really like day-to-day work and making sure the mail goes out and admin and spreadsheets. And like, this is not, this is not like everybody's 10 toes in and just doing the work. And and I work, you know, I've got incredible kind of like co-founders and board advisors and everybody. And so everybody, everybody's like, this is like, the ground floor and everybody's participating in doing the work. And so I think that there's a certain kind of just like real lifeness to it. Um, and I don't think that I personally ever felt like away from that world. You know, like I was a high school teacher before the band and I have like an incredible group of friends that are not in music. They're not in the music industry. And so I, I feel like me personally, I've always been surrounded by like, and even Arcade Fire, it's like pretty real like people that do their grocery shopping and laundry and <laughs> like <laughs> it's it's not um in my experience nothing ever really kind of spiraled away from that. I don't I'm not answering. Thank you for sharing. No, no, I think you're really answering that. I wanna thank you for sharing that because I think sometimes you know, like I spent time thinking about what I wanted to ask you and basically stalking you online before we spoke. And I think you can go to the Plus One website and you can see all of the connections. You can see who sits on your board. You like you would think it's this massive enterprise, you know, and that you're jet setting and you're having these important conversations, not like you're also having to lick the stamps to mail something. <laughs> behind the curtain plus one (laughs) yeah no and I I mean I'm laughing because I'm recording here in my in-laws basement while we're looking for an apartment in the city so I mean (laughs) there's there's, you know what the public face of things are and like what it really looks like but it, it it seems like that's what helps make you stay humble. I guess. I mean, I'm not doing it. I'm not licking the envelopes to stay humble. I'm licking the envelopes because we got to get the work done. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know, like I'm not, it's not um, like. It's not a conscious choice. It just needs to get no. done. 
it just needs to get done. And so I think like either you have the mind frame of it's got to get done or like I'm too good for that. And I choose that it's got to get done. Mindset. As someone who won the superlative in high school as contributed most to the class of 1995, I think we're, we're kindred spirits on that front. Yeah. This just needs to get done. <laughs> it just needs to get done. It just needs to get done. So here's a question for you. You are a staff of three people. You've raised $4 million. You're taking meetings all over the place. You're a wife. You're a mom, right? Mm -hmm. I am. I'm a proud mom of a three-year-old amazing girl. Oh, what's her name? Magnolia. Oh, gorgeous. Yeah. So, Marika, how do you keep it all together? Uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I have an amazing therapist. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, and I think a lot of days in the last two years, it's felt like I'm not. It's been really, there's been some moments of like real challenge of like, you know, it, there was like this really important kind of pivot moment for me where I was going to go out on tour. I had just delivered my baby and the band's album reflector had just come out and tour was starting and I was going to head out on tour with a nanny in tow and like my baby basically in a wrap, like wrapped on my body and like waving goodbye to Marcus, my husband. And like, there was just this moment of like, what are we doing? is this why we're having a family? Is this what we want to do together? And for me, there was like a moment of, you know, for some people that makes absolute sense that they would do that. And that's what empowers them and makes them feel stronger to do that. And it wasn't making me feel stronger. It was making me feel weaker. And so recognizing that and feeling that and being like, this isn't for me and my family, what made us feel what, like why we are embarking on this. Um, I want to be doing this other thing over there. I want to, I want to like explore plus one. I want to scale that. I want to build that. And so, you know, in that moment, it was like, I think I got to do that other thing. And I want to spend time together with my family. I wasn't in a, I, I wasn't ready to take my daughter away from her dad for the first year of her life. And I'm grateful to have a relationship where, we can come together and had that been the right decision for us, that would have been the right decision. And that's awesome. And that is absolutely the right decision for some families, but for us, it didn't feel like that was. So, you know, in that, that really fundamentally personal pivot moment of like, cool, I think it's time for me to hang up my touring shoes for a bit and work with my daughter. Now, now I like had a tiny baby and had a, tiny startup at the same time (laughs) and learning how to be a mom while, and it it really is a process, I believe, and learning how to be a mom and learning how to start an organization from scratch with, with an incredible group of people, but who had also not done that before. And luckily for incredible advisors who had done that before. And luckily for them, I think we we did something that we're all extraordinarily proud of. But, you know, in terms of holding it all together, there's moments where you feel like 
you know, today I was a bad mom and I was a bad worker. Like I did neither of those two things I'm trying to do well. And like, that feels like so shitty. Um, and there's moments where you're just kind of like, okay, you know, we're trying to be like a really good mom and there's so much pressure on motherhood and working right now. And how to define oneself as being like a perfect mom and what that even means and what one's relationship with their kid represents or the time versus quality discussion or all of these things that, you know, there's people like around that would look at me and be like, well, I'm not going to send my kid, you know, to daycare knowing full well, like, I, lo- I live in Montreal where we have an extraordinary daycare program, which is $7 a day. And it's like a sliding scale for everybody. And you're just like, it's, it's, you know, we're talking about the village of like raising children in a village and all of us, you know, me included these like yuppie professionals <laughs> being like, I just love <laughs> the village, but it's like the daycare is the village, like back in the village where we would all be like, cooking and cleaning and scrubbing and all the kids are running around together with the bigger kids looking after the little kids and other people are looking after your children that that to me is this amazing daycare that my kid goes to and this extraordinary group of you know awesome babysitters that we get to work with and I have an awesome husband and so being able to like shift that perspective took a little bit of time is like how am I going to measure my own success you know as a mom Am I going to like cut myself down based on Pinterest every day? Or am I going to look at my own relationship and my own kid? So how do you do that? Like for someone listening, like what does your process look like? So my process is still in process for sure. Um, But I have an extremely, you know, and I think it's like using the data rather than the ideas or the hunches, or the opinions about it. So the data is, I have a great relationship with my kid. We love each other deeply. We bond, we snuggle, we spend incredible quality time together. She tells me what's going on in her day. I mean, she's three, and, you know, we talk about emotion. Like, she's she's this incredible spirit, And also it allows me to know that while she's not with me during the day or while I'm traveling sometimes, um, that she's in really good hands. Um, And just looking and going back to the data, like, is she good? Because ultimately that's what I really care about. Is that like, is my daughter feeling loved? Is she safe? Is she exploring the world in a way that lets her know that this world is like a good an exciting place to be. Yes, yes, yes. And so going back to that and having like tuning out all the other stuff that it's like Halloween this weekend. And after this phone call with you, like I got to go find like some blue sparkly pants (laughs) so she can be the butterfly. (laughs) And it's like not ready. And I did not sew them and I'm not going to have, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do myself. You're not not letting the Pinterest ideal or the other voices creep in. Yeah. Don't tell me that I'm failing because I'm not sewing my kids Halloween pants. (laughs) If I, and that's the thing, 
It's like, I love sewing and I would love to sew my kid Halloween pants. This year it didn't work, but I'm not going to like cut myself down about being a failure as a mom for that. So those outside voices, I mean, sometimes the inner critic, and I call it the itty bitty shitty committee, like that's on overdrive (laughs) in its own right, right? Yeah. But then there are all these external voices. And I think you might be in a really special position to answer one question. So like you hear these voices about being a mom, yet when you were in a band, I don't know, I feel like there have to be trolls, right? Like every now and again, even me with my little tiny platform will have someone just like hammer on me something. How do you keep the outside voices out? Um, I think we I, we all try and keep them out. And I, I also don't always succeed at keeping them out. But for the most part, like, I remember this one time in like early Arcade Fire days, like, I was not like quick on the internet or like quick on socials and stuff like that. That's not something that like I always gravitated towards. And so there was like a fan club that I didn't really know about or whatever. And then there was all these kind of like, as obviously everybody knows that listening to this, cause I'm a Luddite, but you know, there's just like fan websites out there. And there was this one fan website that kept talking to like, why does Marika always wear the blue dress? <laughs> I was like you know I was like oh we're in a different city every night and I really like this blue dress and it makes me feel good on stage (laughs) it's like the stupidest thing to think about right now but like I was like oh my god I'm so caught like I've been wearing the blue dress every night (laughs) so dumb but it made me feel really embarrassed I felt really really embarrassed like busted they caught me totally busted totally they caught me totally like just like this feeling of like this shattered um you, one thinks one's giving off a certain impression and clearly I was not you know like all of those things I don't know that one's an easy one to laugh at you know so you're just like okay like let's just get this like stage wardrobe together here <laughs> like like, let me find one or two other dresses that I also feel good in yeah and so I think it's like really like honing in like what is the feeling that you're feeling like why are you embarrassed are you embarrassed because you've actually been wearing a blue dress every night but are you embarrassed that like you should have more like what is the like core of that feeling and so I think you know those are the tools to kind of explore like why do I feel this way and so it's like, okay, great. Then whatever that feeling is, let's solve it. No, those are tools that I've learned from other people. So what I'm hearing from you is there's sort of some self-inquiry. Like, okay, this happened. What am I reacting to here? And sort of looking for those questions to kind of help you get there. And yeah, then coming to that easy fix. Like, oh, okay, just get a couple different dresses. And sometimes it's not an easy fix. And sometimes it's also not just reacting because someone else said that you should react to it. So it's like, if that doesn't feel good, or if you get an email, or someone leaves you a message in a tone, or, you know, you make a mistake, or whatever those things that we we will do, we will make mistakes. And, you know, the reaction to those mistakes, it's kind of like, we've got to you know, or people will, the noise and people will judge us and people will be mean. 
Um, and it's kind of like sitting with that, like, are, am I mad that this type of meanness exists in the world? Or like, did that touch an even deeper button for me? Got it. And like, you know? Yeah. Is there anything I can do about it? And if like after some sitting, you're like, nope, that's not on me. That's on them. That's not, that's their story, not my story. And really, really trying to hone in like what's my story versus what's someone else's story that they're trying to impose on us. Yes. And that's hard. But that's a really, really important thing. It's like, did that comment, you know, if someone lashed out at me, did that mean that I'm a, like, I need to fix it and I'm a horrible person? And in some cases, okay, not a horrible person. But like in some cases, like, yep, I got to fix that one. That's on me. That's part of my story. And in some cases, it's like, you know, really trying to dig down to being like, nope, that's not my story. That's their story. And then when you're able to distill who owns it, that helps you kind of offload it. I think so. I think so. It's a tough question I, I'm putting out there. I think, but I, one of the things I realized in my work is like I was talking to women privately, right? So for seven years, I've been hearing women talk about like the really gory details of their life. And I think over seven years, I've seen trends, patterns. And one of those has been if other women could hear other women talking about like these kinds of things, it might help us collectively. So I think what you're sharing, although it's something you probably never think of because it's automatic for you, is actually profoundly helpful in some ways. Or I hope so for my listeners. I hope so too. And it's not that easy for me. Um, I had to learn how to do that. Like, functionally with a therapist because like things outside noise did affect me and I think sometimes we're, we're socialized to do this as women or I was in my own life of being an achiever being ambitious I, I have to say this like I got you know like 98% you know I'm like trying to get good grades but also trying to be like real and not being like goody but like I, I remember I got 98% on my provincial French exam I grew up in BC and like mm -hmm. my mom's reaction to that was like, what happened to the other two? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, and I'm like, laughing with you <laughs> as like someone who had fairly athletic parents. And when I got the B plus in gym, but like A's on everything else, you know, they were like, what happened in gym? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so there's like a certain kind of like achiever complex, I think, that can happen. And, um, you know, I think as, as so maybe as, as women, like as, as moms and as women, we can put a lot of it on ourselves to fix. And like, oh, yep, that's, that's like, okay, now I got to fix that and I'm going to fix my friends and I'm going to fix this like, you know, wounded boyfriend and I'm going to fix, I'm going to fix, I'm going to fix, I'm going to fix, I'm going to fix. And like, it's, you know, we end up taking responsibility for the world in a way that is not real. Like, that's not real. It's not on like us individually to fix all of it. So, so being able to like divide up 
what is our responsibility, you know, and, and as opposed to like not taking responsibility for anything, we got to take responsibility also if we hurt in our friendships or if we say yes. something that's misunderstanding or, you know, and, and really take responsibility for it. But once you do, you let it go. This story that I read to my daughter called Zen Shorts and one of the Zen shorts in it is these two monks. I mean, this is like a normal Buddhist story, but I, of course, learned it through a children's book because I haven't done Buddhist readings. But like these two monks are walking down the street and this woman, it's rained and there's this like really big puddle. And this like very fancy woman who's being rude to everybody needs to get across the water. And the people that are holding her, she's in one of those like thrown chairs. I don't know the word for it. Oh my God. So she's like Cleopatra. She's a little bit Cleopatra. And she like can't get across the water and she needs to get across the water. And so she asks like, you know, like everybody needs to get me across the water. So the older monk, the young monk doesn't do it, but the older monk goes up and gets her on his back and he carries her across the water. And then there he continues to walk with the other monk. He doesn't say anything. She certainly doesn't say thank you. And they keep walking. So the two monks keep walking. And 15 minutes later, the young monk is like, why did you do that? How did you do that? She didn't even say thank you to you. And the older monk says, I put her down 15 minutes ago. Why are you still carrying her? <laughs> I love that story. Right? I'm a, I mean, we're all lifelong learners, but I am a very fledgling Buddhist. And so that story is amazing. And I love that it's in children's book form now. Right. It's in children's book form. And I always get like, I like, you know, the first time I read that story, I like lost my breath for a little bit while I was, <gasps> I learned so much from it while I was reading it to my daughter. And that's, you know, we can't always achieve that, but it is important to kind of like, why are we still carrying it? And to like, you know, we have to do our best to repair, um, once we've hurt and take responsibility for our actions, the good and the bad, and own it. Um, and also, you know, once we put down Cleopatra, we put her down. <laughs> you know? Yeah. What helps yeah. you release? Like, I know some people over the years, I've heard lots of journaling, meditation, you know, just some sort of conscious questioning. What is helpful for you? Because letting it go to an audience of overachievers, type A women, recovering perfectionists, imposters, like that's a huge concept. What's it look like for you? Um, I don't know. Like, I think that's been something that I'm working on is like finding out what some of those things are. I obviously know, I mean, like we all know that like exercise is important. And I do, and again, like if we start looking at the data for the days and the weeks, that I rec exercise regularly, I do better at these kinds of things than the, the weeks that I don't. And so it's like going back to the data for me on that one. It's like, oh, I'm starting to feel super crazy. My husband calls it mad dog, like when the dog just needs to go for a walk. <laughs> and I know that that doesn't sound all that like romantic from the get-go. <laughs> I mean, most often self refers to this, not anybody else. But like, it's like just kind of like recognizing those those things not as the issue itself, but maybe it's some of these other kind of life things surrounding the issue when an issue feels insurmountable 
or when we start getting anxiety about it or the, our to-do list just like scrolls all night through your head and you can't sleep, you know, all those moments. It's just like, okay, try having a consistent exercise for me does really make a difference. And like, I hate, um, I found it. I don't want to say I hate, like I deeply dislike it. No, I love it. <laughs> but I love certain parts of it. I find it really hard to like prioritize it. I, th- I prioritize a lot of things before I prioritize that. And so to make that a priority is like a conscious effort of like, Oh, it is part of my day. It has to be part of my work day and other things have to work around doing that. So that's one thing that I think is really important. And two is a community of people and like getting out in the world and seeing them for a little while I was working from home, you know, it, it, and, and had a very small child and like I ended up, and I think that this is just, you know, also embracing this as an acceptable, like new normal for a little while, but where like, I just spent so much time at home because I was like working from home and I was momming from home and I had babysitters in the house working with me and nanny, uh, I had a nanny and, um, you know, a seeking out that help was really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was in a position to be able to do that. And I have an in-law nearby that is, you know, helpful. So that was lucky. Um, but, you know, using community to that level, and we were kind of talking about the village earlier, it's like allowing things like daycare to be a village and allowing a babysitter to be part of your village, I think is also okay. And then I started like getting out of the house and being, you know, I spent like 10 years only out of my house. And then I was like, in my house like, <laughs> hours and hours and hours as someone who works from home yeah. I 100% get what you're talking about while there's freedom and it's comfy it can also be isolating yeah super isolating and so remembering that I'm a creature of community and so even though like my work is entirely about community all day long and I talk about it and I engage in it and I help try and foster it um it was like in the reality of my day-to-day life, my community was getting further and further had it when I was doing that. And so it was about, I have this incredible group of girlfriends and um, every Thursday night, like it's like signed, sealed, we have dinner on Thursday nights, no matter what. So unless you're traveling or you're out of town, we have dinner on Thursday nights. And sometimes that means that they were at my house while I was like breastfeeding my baby and we were just like ordering in pizza and having dinner together at my house. And sometimes that means we go out to like a new restaurant and sometimes it means that we all just cook for each other and do whatever. It's not fancy. It's not, sometimes it's glamorous, which is really fun, but often it's, (laughs) and you know, especially like, it has been something that has been so restorative because even on a Monday, it's like, okay, I know that that's happening on Thursday. It's an anchor. And so like you have exercise and anchor, you have your friendships as an anchor and then working with anchors too has been really important. And, you know, there's a bunch of colleagues in my work that are anchors where like every day we connect, it's real. We reach out. And they might be across the world, but, you know, finding these anchors and regularly holding on to them. Brilliant. 
I think that's so important. And thank you for giving us a window into what your personal life looks like. My like, well, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to talk with you and, um, and thanks for having me. It's, it's been a lot of fun. I, I, uh, I'm excited to be a part of this community. I'm so excited. I have a few more, what I like to call the champagne questions for you. Okay. And they're questions that I like to ask every guest and like, they're really just kind of gut response and we can go through them. But I think they're helping me collect different perspectives on things. So Marika, knowing music is so ultimately important for you and such a piece of the fabric of your very being, what song or songs either pump you up or soothe you the most? Oh, man, so many, right? Of course. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Um, Trust me, I know the weight this question carries for certain guests. Yeah, so it carries a lot. And I'll just stick to me on an airplane yesterday and where I went to, which was actually um, Pergolesi Stabat Mater, which is just really honing in. If I really, like, to be honest, if I, like, hone in on it, often it's Pergolesi Stabat Mater or... Oh, let's just, I'll just stick with that as a good answer. I could, I could go on. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I I will like agonize over like a top 10 list. So for hours sometimes. What do you go back to for inspiration again and again? And this can be art, music, a place. I often go to like people and conversation and questions. So I just, you know, it can just be so rejuvenating to sit with Paul Farmer for an hour and remember, like, why we're doing this work. And for inspiration, I think it's those moments where you can, like, it'll often be in music and listening. It will often be, like, at an, like, art museum and, in like seeing how people are expressing themselves and what they're thinking about and kind of diving into it. Um, but for me, primarily, it's it's listening and conversation. I, I think it's great. And I 100% relate to what you're talking about. I mean, doing these podcasts has been such an amazing way to learn and connect with, with people. And mm-hmm. I... I really vibed when you said rejuvenating. Mm-hmm. So I get it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be a funny question, especially as you're a self-described Luddite. What favorite tools, app, gadgets help you get through the day? Um, in a functional way. I'm really relieved that Google calendars lets you sync all the calendars with all the other people in your life. Yes. Like the calendar really, really matters. And the fact that like my husband who has such a busy life too, and I can sync our calendars really matters. So that's silly. But if we're actually talking about like functioning, that really like calendars really matter. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then for fun I don't know because I don't I don't do all that many stuff but like 
I have to say, like, I'm really loving, like, I've never Snapchatted or anything, which I need to learn, I guess, how to do because so many people are on Snapchat. <laughs> and like, don't you feel like a grandma? I say the same well, thing. Yeah. And it's like, I don't want to not be relevant. Like, I want to understand how people are thinking and communicating with one another in like a really profound way, which is different than than I am used to or than I how I I I engage sometimes with the world doesn't mean that like, yeah, I got to, you know, I, I want to learn what keeps people engaging with each other, but I really love, you know, I, I follow a lot of people on Instagram who are just like so creative with that tool. And just like, it's like all these miniature, beautiful moments of art, whether it's like photography or these little videos or um, like um, a friend of mine, Megan Lawson is like, this extraordinary dancer and choreographer and she'll just put stuff out on Instagram. That's like so beautiful with extraordinary music and it can be funny. It can be profound and it's short and, and just like that's inspiring. It's like, Oh yeah. So just, just like moments of, of what people are creating and putting out there. Uh, I'm really into. Cool. And you had mentioned tasks or being up at night, thinking about your task list. And that's something I've also heard a lot about in the last seven years, which has <laughs> set me on the path to try to make some art and collect 33,000 task lists. So one question I have for every guest is, how do you organize your tasks? Oh, I don't know that I found my perfect system. I like, I love systems and working within systems because I'm somebody that tends to like explode within a, like in a good way. But if I have to like build the system and try and like, if I build the fencing and try and explode within it, I find that really challenging. So, um, I'm, I divide them up, you know, like usually there's like home and then like, Work has a bunch of subcategories, obviously. And home has a bunch of subcategories, too. I don't know. I have home, and then I have subcategories of, like... Are you paper and pen? Are you digital? Oh, is that what you're asking? Both. I was like, <laughs> like let me give you the crazy task list I have. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> um, I am I am paper and pen. Cool. I am paper and pen. But Don't I'm forget also... to send it to me when you're done. That's my yeah, shameless right. plug. Yeah. I, I remember like learning. I love this story about Paul Farmer. Like even after he's already done it, he writes like, and, and these boats and it's like he does this, the, like the little square and then writes the thing and then ticks the box. Even if he's already. <laughs> Cause the, like, A man after my own heart the satisfaction of like ticking the box of like knowing and going back. And it's important for us to remember when you do look ahead and you have this mountain of things ahead of you, it is important to recognize the small successes that like, nope, we're accomplishing things every day, not the entire mountain, but we're getting things done and it feels so good to do yeah, that. Yeah. What's the story about like, how do you eat or the joke about how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time and like recognizing <laughs> you have been taking bites. Yeah. But I'm I'm paper pen and Google task list with alarms. <laughs> nice. So the controlled chaos. I, I like your systematic style. 
here's a little bit of a different couple of questions. And I know it's a huge question. So I just want to kind of get your gut response. How would you define being a modern woman in 2016? I hope that being a modern woman in 2016 means that we can, I mean, I think there's a, you know, unite together and in the habits that we have of judging ourselves, stop judging one another at the same time, you know, that we're like uniting and we're for each other and we're supporting each other and all these like fucking unbelievable women doing extraordinary things every day. And by extraordinary, it's the, also the day-to-day things that are extraordinary while managing all of it and supporting one another and being like, yeah, you got this together, um, I hope is the modern woman in 2016. That's what I'm feeling. I'm surrounded by an incredible group of women and men and um, um, celebrating each other is good. Though that sounds like a little bit of a, you know, it feels like a little bit of like an upworthy answer. In terms of like, you're questioning it or? Oh, it's like, yeah, of course we should be doing that. But we should always be doing that. That's like, why is that 2016 different than 2015 or 14? You know what I mean? It's yeah, like, it, it's less about the year. I mean, I, I think how would you define being a modern woman is really the question. Being a modern woman is about, I really, I, I'm trying to have it be about personally, about a reduction in, 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 in judgment for others and for oneself and getting it done and being proud of small accomplishments and big accomplishments and also supporting other people in theirs. The other two questions that I sort of piggyback with that one is, what would you like to see modern women give more of a shit about? And conversely, what would you like to see modern women give less of a shit about? I I feel like we kind of touched on those, but if there's anything more you want to add to either of those. I want us to give more shit about like what our our individual stories are and what we can kind of take ownership for, rather than like giving ownership of what we accomplished other people. Um that's what I want us to give more shit about that. Our voices are smart and hilarious and true and, and worthy. Does that make sense? Yeah. I I think women having a voice is such an important thing. And I mean, I think you're modeling it, you know, so it, it's powerful. I think that's what women need to hear. And, like, I think we need to give less of a shit about, I think we need to, like, be careful with how competitive we are with one another. And that every single woman with success, um, however they measure that and however we measure that, is important to all of us. And, you know, that, uh, like, you know, we're a team, (laughs) whether we like it or not we are one big collective team yes um and so i like to think we're getting less judgmental of of ourselves and others but i really think that that's that i think we got to give less of a shit about judging each other for for small things and really you know 
embracing the, the, the differences and the challenges that, that we face individually and together, you know, like, yeah, we're not the same. Great. Move on. Beautifully said. (laughs) (laughs) Beautifully said. Or embracing the, the variety of perspectives. Yeah. Like instead of being afraid of it or instead of it registering in this really negative way, but to see like, if we were all the same, this would be an incredibly boring world. Yeah. Like we don't all have the, I guess like that same like Pinterest thing. It's like, okay, we all got to fit all these same boxes. And it's like so fucking boring. Like. <laughs> Amen. So-, <laughs> so Marika, what do you most want Le Vital Course Salon listeners to know? If you can leave them with any message today. Oh man. You know, I am so grateful to be asked to like be here and to chat with you and to share some some of the insights I've been learning along the way and and hopefully a lot more that I'll be learning in the next, you know, years <laughs> to come. But um I think particularly those of us and I count myself certainly among them that are um, challenged with, you know, moments of feeling not good enough or defeated, um, that goes hand in hand with being ambitious and taking risks and getting out of our comfort zones and having the audacity to try things. And I think that, um, it it is its own power and its own success to even think about trying to start a business or to have a child and raise it or to write an album or to whatever it is to do the thing that you th- think you might want to do and to try it and to to step out of one's comfort zone to execute it to do a public speaking engagement whatever those things are um that really, really matters. It really, really matters. And that we should all feel so grateful for the strength of even thinking about it or trying it is an important place to go back to. I'm almost speechless listening. This is everything I hoped I would hear from people like you, successful women like you as part of doing this show because I, th- I think I think it's so important that women hear it in different from different perspectives right like from an artist is going to sound different than maybe from a lawyer is going to sound different than an accountant is going to sound different than me and I, I think what you just shared is is worth so much and is so valuable in terms of information so my heart is exploding open with joy and <laughs> gratitude. And I I get a little teary sometimes in these things. And that was the most beautiful mic drop I've heard. So thank you. Thank you. And Marika, if, if women want to learn more about you, learn more about your work, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, please join the Plus One community online where we've started doing some exciting kind of journey and storytelling with the artists that we work with and with fans. Um, 
so like on our socials, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, um, please join us. Cause I think that that is the best way to learn about what's happening. And then I'm also on, on socials and do my best, you know, my, <laughs> your digitals, Luddite best, <laughs> my, my Luddite best. Um, and you know, we'll be sharing that journey too over there. So, um, but you know, I'm, I'm really proud of what we're accomplishing at plus one and it certainly goes hand in hand with my own journey. So, um, I would love to, to have people interested, kind of join that community and, and, um, and participate. Awesome. And I'll post all of that in the show notes for anyone listening. And Marika, again, thank you. Feels like the understatement of the year. Thank you so much for taking your time to be here and also just sharing from such a deeply human, compassionate, and generous place. The work that you're doing out in the world matters so much, and I I hope you keep doing it for years to come. I can't wait to follow. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. everyone. I hope you dug that conversation with Marika as much as I enjoyed having it with her. And hopefully there were some valuable takeaways. Thank you so much for tuning in. All of today's show notes can be found at levitalcoursalon.com. So L-E-V-I-T-A-L-C-O-R-P-S-S-A-L-O-N.com. If you dug today's show or past episode, please support this podcast by going to iTunes and rating and reviewing. It's super helpful to a brand new podcast like me, and I'd be greatly appreciative for your help. And new shows, just so you know, will be up on the second and fourth Wednesdays of each month. I also want to add a quick thank you to Rishi Deer for originally just sending us both kind of a a little short cryptic email of like, you guys should meet. And Fiona, I'm probably going to botch this up because seven lessons of French and I'm struggling still. But Fiona Dalrymple, thank you for helping organize me and Marika and and sort of get our schedules together. That was a big help and I really appreciate it. And don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let burnout or bullshit slow you down. See you next time. (laughs) 